You're listening to another episode of The Zag, continuing our series talking to NLC alums who are lawyers doing the important work at the local level with so much of the courts on our mind at the national level. We needed some good news, so we're talking to alums from across the country doing that good news. we got NLC New York 2012 fellow Joachim Steinberg is here. We'll chat with him, see what he's up to. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get to it. Joachim, do you feel like uh, a lawyer and being a lawyer was always in your future? Did you come to it later in life? How did it come to be? Huh. I, you know, I think I'm probably the only person in the world who is a Jewish kid out of New York City who happens to be the black sheep of his family for going into law. <laughs> what um, is that? Most of my family is in the arts. Okay. Uh, you know, I was a teacher before I became a lawyer. I thought it might be a good fit for me, but sort of, I, I don't know that it was always in the cards. <laughs> Interesting. And was there a certain kind of law you were drawn to? Have you done a bunch of different kinds since you've been a lawyer? What's the kind of background so far? You know, I was a public interest guy my whole way through law school, and I kind of stumbled into the private sector. I happen to like the private sector very much, but I have a fairly broad background in everything from government work, international human rights work, um, impact litigation, and direct services from when I was in law school. And then in private practice, I clerked, so you see a pretty wide variety of things there. And then I've been an employment lawyer, then more recently an intellectual property litigator. And do you feel like lawyers are by, na- by nature tend to be more progressive, tend to be more conservative? How would you describe their, their political orientations? I think that's a very hard question to answer globally. Um, I think the lawyers I know tend to be progressive, but I went to a relatively progressive law school. I have practiced in including clerking New York Detroit and San Francisco, so three fairly strong mm. democratic bastions as far as cities go. Um, I think lawyers are often what I would call small C conservative. We tend to work within the lines, we tend to respect institutions, and we tend to want slow Fabian progressive change. Um, but that's not universally true. You know, I'm a member of NLG, I try and participate in progressive causes, and there are certainly lawyers who are way more radical than I am in terms of the rate of change. Yeah, I can believe it. Well, listen, some of the, the work you're doing, I feel like gives you a chance to, to live out your, your progressive beliefs, your progressive values. What kind of things would you want to lift up for folks to know about? So my pro bono practice has largely drifted in the direction of uh, direct services. Um, I have a pro bono immigration client seeking asylum. Um, I don't want to reveal too much you know, sure. client-sensitive information, but in the public record, I can tell you he's a, a Guatemalan um, immigrant who was a family was a victim of the Maya genocide. I've also worked on tenants' rights cases. Um, I personally have tended towards direct services in my pro bono practice for a couple of reasons. Um, I think it's a very impactful way to do work, and I think the needs there are just overwhelming. Um, Certainly, there's a lot of great impact litigation going on, but I think that's often better handled by organizations dedicated to that rather than individual lawyers in private practice. Um, I also have a fairly steady diet of advice work that over the years I've given out to pro bono clients in progressive spaces looking for sort of ways to mitigate subpoena risk or structure organizations in such a way that they're um, that, that is best suited for their goals. And then because you're able to do these direct services, you know, so much of what we've thought about and talked about since COVID hit is the systems that were unequal before that are really unequal now and probably going in the wrong directions. And I'm sure you see a lot of that close up today. Uh, does anything give you any optimism that some of the systems will get a chance to, to, to reset or we with the right pressure or the right enthusiasm could 
you know, move some of the, the, the systems in a direction that would serve a lot of the clients that you're, you're probably working with? Sure. I think it's a great question. And I'd be lying if I said I had a very good answer for what the future holds post-COVID, especially around courts. Um, litigation, obviously, has been very highly impacted by the ability of people to not go in front of, in front of tribunals of any form. Um, and I don't think anyone has a really good sense of how long this is going to last or what the impact is going to be. I would say, given the current political climate, for in, in some places, COVID has been generally advantageous. That might sound very callous, but delaying proceedings under the current administration is something we talk about in progressive lawyering circles, that we just want to kick things down the, the road until we can get an administration that's maybe more willing to work with us on progressive causes. Oh, we go back. We'll talk, uh, of course, more about lawyering and and uh, the law, but also about national news and the context of the Supreme Court and all the things that have happened in the last seven days or so. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Zag. We'll be right back. Are there lots of discussions amongst lawyers about the Supreme Court in general? Is there discussions at the water cooler, if you will, about court packing or any of these kind of things, or are these things only confined to progressive Twitter? Um, I think they're certainly more common on progressive Twitter, but yeah, look, <laughs> look, look, the Supreme Court obviously makes a difference in the day-to-day practice of lawyers. We ex- have uh, both a professional and personal interest in this, and so certainly it comes up. I lost track of how many you know messages in various forms I got within the hour of hearing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing. Um, you know, it, it's obviously a, a tremendously big deal. And I think I personally, I'm like kind of a law nerd. And so my friend group tends towards the law nerd side of things. And so I think my friend group might not be entirely representative of this, but we're certainly very interested in the history of court packing and the, the technical and, and theoretical components of it. Yeah. Is there anything for the non-lawyer alums who might be listening, who are looking for any sort of ray of hope or sense of optimism that there could be a more fair, just way to create a court. Do you feel like it's some of the things we've heard, just adding two more to eight to 11? Do you feel like it's something similar to what Mayor Pete was putting out during the primary where you get to 10 and then those 10 decide on five more? Any of those options appeal to you or something different? You know, I, I think there's a lot of different options that are discussed. I think certainly we need to talk about 18-year term limits um, that are non-renewable and that regulate the number of vacancies in a given term like this morbid fascination with the cancer treatments or heart conditions of justices is just a like terrible monarchical way to run a system and, and obviously should be changed. Um, in terms of court packing, I'll say, look, the consensus in the legal academy, I think, is that the Supreme Court generally reflects public opinion. And I think that's not well understood in the non-lawyer community um, because the biggest moments of the Supreme Court are always the big dramatic sort of either saving rights or doing something that seems really out of whack with what people are thinking moments. But in general, you know, an individual decision might be more conservative or progressive than the general population's view on something. And a court, an error of the court might be a little bit more conservative or progressive than the community at large. But in general, the court has tended to reflect something approaching the national consensus. If a judge of the type that the shortlist seemed to suggest Trump is going to nominate gets on the court, I would say the median justice and the overall position of the court is further removed from the general consensus in America than we've had at any point since at least 1937, which you might remember that, you know, the old, as the old uh, 
switch in time that saved nine in which the four horsemen sort of fell apart so that new deal legislation would stick around so i think there's some reason for historical optimism there's also a lot of reason for real pessimism around the direction the court is moving relative to where the country is moving um and I think that that's certainly a serious issue that counsels in favor of maybe adding some seats. Hey, last thing I feel like too with the election, lawyers are going to play a very prominent role. Not probably since we've seen since two thousand. Anything that the non-lawyer layperson should should watch for as legal proceedings will likely immediately start as soon as the last poll closes. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a great question, and. With the possible exception of a few people, I think it no one has any real idea what it's going to look like or what those challenges are going to look like. I think one of the most important formative things anything any of my professors said to me in law school was to describe the the Madisonian compromise around courts and the agreement and the rise of political parties as the second biggest failing of the constitution, right? Like obviously permitting the institution of slavery is the single biggest problem of the constitution. The second biggest was that Madison tried to design a system that would prevent the rise of political parties and wrote a system that was predicated on not having them. And now we have them and all political law since then has been an attempt to get us around that largely unsuccessfully. Um, And so I think we're in for something of a ride here. Listen, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for the work you're doing. Thanks for insights into what will be an incredibly intense and interesting couple of weeks. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Zag. Make sure to check out all the episodes we're going to drop in the next couple of weeks talking to NLC alums who work in the legal field. Some of them will be lawyers, some of them working on uh, lawyer-adjacent activities. You're going to want to check them all out. They'll be short and sweet and interesting episodes. Get them all the places you find your podcast: SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher. They're all there. Until next time, we'll catch you soon. <laughs>